This is Alicia Free, a badass belly dancer, musician, and real food enthusiast, here to help you feel a little lighter. Each show will dive into music that makes us want to dance. We'll share secrets of looking smoking hot in costume and everyday life. We'll dote on delicious whole food that makes us glow. And I'll throw in a damn sexy dance move you can try at home. Abigail Kies is one educated and informed belly dancer. Not only is she one of just five dancers in the world to hold dual certification in both the Suhaila and Jamila Salampour formats, but she also studied Near Eastern Studies at Princeton and Arabic at Georgetown, and she is currently an adjunct professor out in California at Mills College. Abby actually teaches a course on the history of modern dance in the U.S., and she's a published author as well as the director of the Berkeley Salampour Collective. In show number 38 of this podcast, Suhaila Salampour speaks on cultural appropriation, politics, and community. Abigail is an expert on these topics as well, and she's a big part of the Salampour community. She's one of the dancers most closely connected to the Salampour family and school. Abigail continues to enrich our minds and our American belly dance culture with thoughtful perspectives and often actionable findings that are bundled in kindness along with the understanding that we are all in a different place in our learning journeys. Abby's name is pronounced like eyes with a K, Abby Kies, but it's spelled like the word key, K-E-Y-E-S. So if you go to Abby's website, a-K-E-Y-E-S-Dance.com, you can sign up for her newsletter, which is one of my favorites. And you can also connect with her on Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube. Welcome to the show, Abby. It is wonderful to have you here. Do you have a danceable ritual you would like to share? Danceable ritual. A danceable ritual. You know, it's funny. I really enjoy going to a studio and going to a class, but I feel like there are certain things that kind of get me focused either before a show or before a class. And I think because I've been doing the Salampour method since 2000, the basic warm up that we do, when I start doing that and we stand in that nice wide second and I start doing the breathing, that's what's going to get me shifted from non-dance life into dance mode. So I know when my body starts doing that, then I'm going to be more present for dance in general. And I think about other things that I do, like before a show, I really like to plug into music. It doesn't have to be the music that I'm dancing to in the show. So if I'm getting ready for a show, I kind of have to go inward. So if I'm putting on my makeup or doing my hair, like I have to kind of go inside myself and focus that way. I know some people like to be a little more external, maybe have things going on around them, but I have to go inside. So any of the things that I do to focus before a show or before class, like I have to really be almost like the world falls away. And I think that's just part of my introverted nature. Like, all right, everybody leave me alone. I got to get ready. <laughs> so I don't know if that's enough of a ritual. Can you tell me more about the breathing? Is it deep breathing or counting? Or Well, for the warm up that we do, it's basic breath. So you can do it. Inhale through the nose, exhale through the mouth. I also do a lot of Pilates and the breathing that I do there is inhale through the nose and then exhale through the mouth, but like you're blowing through a straw and through the pursed lips. And what that does is it activates the diaphragm, which of course you need for nice strong lungs, but it also helps activate your deep core muscles. So transverse abdominals, also pelvic floor. So when you exhale through that pursed lips, it kind of activates these really deep stabilizer muscles in your body. So sometimes I will integrate that into the dance warm. But the breath that we do is just more natural, just like big breath in, big breath out. 
just reconnecting with that very natural process. And let me go on a little bit of a tangent. There's also this method of teaching dance to children called brain dance. And I'm sure some of your listeners will know about this. If I'm not mistaken, it was developed or it was taught by a woman, Bonnie Brainbridge. And when children are learning how to move and how they're learning where their body is in space, the first thing they do is breathe. So it makes so much sense that when you're trying to center yourself for a class or center yourself for a show, that the first thing that you do is also breathe. That's the first thing that we do in our lives is we breathe. So we don't have to teach a child how to breathe, you know, so it's natural. And then from there, you can start exploring the ways that your body moves. So yeah, breath, it always starts with the breath. Right. So many different practices and philosophies start with the breath. Mm-hmm. It's really great. It's simple, right? It's not easy, but it's simple. Right. It's so funny because my partner, he's been really getting into Qigong. And of course, that's the first thing you do there too. Start with breathing. And it's big belly breaths. So really trying to expand the like, fleshy part of the belly and also expanding into the low back. And I think a lot of us people in North America, any sort of like sort of westernized, I don't really like the term West because the earth is round. So West of what? But any of these cultures where it's like work, 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 we tend to breathe up in our neck, in our shoulders. Shoulders, but there's no lung capacity up there. All of our lung capacity is in our back and really deep down. So I really encourage everybody to try to breathe into your mid back if you're feeling stressed or you're feeling uncentered. And almost all the other somatic practices that I've explored, they all are like, don't breathe up in your neck, breathe up in your shoulders, take that breath, send it down, send it down. So yeah. Wonderful. I was just doing Qigong in the woods. I've developed this Qigong and belly dance practice and I put a video up recently on YouTube of it. It just makes me feel so good. Oh, wow. I want to go do Qigong in the woods. Right? <laughs> the video was of me doing it in the ocean in Southern Thailand where I can really breathe because everybody's oh. breathing. Like, the kids meditate after lunch. Like my fourth graders used to sit at a hall where you all get together. They would sit there together and meditate after lunch. And they're showing yeah. that teaching mindfulness meditation in schools is not just improving grades, but improving disciplinary issues. But you know, kids are less likely to act out, they're more focused. And I used to work for this company that they go into corporations and teach their employees mindfulness meditation. So I was doing a lot of reading about the neuroscience of meditation, and it changes your brain, like literally changes your frontal lobe. And it's pretty amazing. Again, it's so simple, but not easy if right. you're not in an environment where everybody's doing it, right? Yes. It makes it a bit more challenging, got to get creative. I actually totally. felt like I just got out of a meditation retreat today when I saw people when I was walking to the woods and I saw two other people on the street and I didn't really know how to talk to them. You're like, what are they, what's happening? Who are you? I felt like I just finished another 10-day silent meditation retreat. <laughs> That's what it feels like. You're like, what do I do with this other human? I've been in isolation. It was really hilarious. I have to tell my husband that I had that experience. That's really funny. I expect that this podcast will probably go out right when things are starting to open up a little bit more. But yeah, it's like the depths of COVID time right now. <laughs> right. This is being recorded during the depth of isolation with no end in sight. <laughs> so hopefully it will be released at a much more free and outward outside time. I know. Great danceable ritual. Thank you. If you have a danceable ritual you want to share, please visit aliciafree.com. That's A-L-I-C-I-A free F-R-E-E and click on the Facebook icon and post your ritual. We want to see who you are and what makes you want to dance. And if you tried one of these danceable rituals, tell us how it went. Go to aliciafree.com, click on that Facebook icon, and post. Now it's time for some music. Danceable Song
Is there a danceable song you want to share? This was a really hard question because, first of all, there are so many songs. And second of all, the songs that you have in your podcast or your playlist on Spotify, there are so many songs on there that I think I would choose. (laughs) I was like, I got to come up with something new. Honestly, my first instinct was, of course, Yain Will I Attain, which is that classic Debki song from the Levant. It's one of those songs that everybody knows. And even if you don't know that you know it, you probably know it if you're a belly dancer. It also goes by the name Shashkin if it's played by Turkish musicians. It has different lyrics in Turkish that actually mean different things than the Arabic version. But I noticed that was on your list already. So I wanted to bring this song up just because I appreciate the energy of it. So Najwa Karam, she's a Lebanese singer and she also does a lot of work kind of in that Debki vibe. And the song is Mafi Nom and it means like I'm not sleeping and she's like the new stages of love or obsession with someone or a crush and he's like oh I just can't sleep because I'm thinking about you so much. And it's really danceable because it has a lot of energy. It has that great upbeat vibe but it also has a little bit of a Latin dance quality to it. It starts with a piano and she also does a vocalization of the dooms and texts of the Arabic drum of the doombag. So she's singing the dooms and the texts, which reminded me a lot of what you might hear in a lot of classical Indian music. So there's a lot of hybridity in the song. So she's got this sort of Latin dance vibe with the piano. And then of course there's the debki, there's the mijwiz. And then she also is kind of taking these modes from classical Indian dance. So check it out. I dare you to sit still while listening to it it's not possible and that's the same way I feel about yeah I'm late then yeah totally (laughs) totally fires me up like nothing (laughs) and it's one of these songs too that just makes me smile like I'm just like ah yay (laughs) our band would play it and our kanun player was from Lebanon and he would get up at the end of the song with the kanun on top of him like he would hold it up in the air over his head and just freak out dancing (laughs) that's amazing (laughs) and he forbids us from sharing the videos (laughs) Even though it was like one of the high points of every show, you know? So I'm really excited to check out this Mafi Noom song. Yeah, it's fun. You're going to be like, oh my God, it's totally a danceable song. (laughs) Wonderful. And you speak Arabic. I used to be better, but now I don't really have a lot of opportunities to practice. And with language, like if you don't use it, you lose it. I try to keep it up. My original Arabic training was very academic. I mean, you know my background. I'm a very academic person. And the way they teach, at least the way I was taught Arabic in my undergrad, was more that you'd be using it for research. So reading books and reading articles and then having to translate them for your research. So that's really what I got better at. Like if I have to actually generate words it's a little more difficult but I can read it pretty well and I think that's the case with I mean a lot of times when anybody's learning a language like actually generating the words is the hardest part but if I'm around you know it starts coming back Wonderful. anyone wants to practice I... Arabic with me I'm right <laughs> And it's funny because I have people I could be practicing with. It's just, you know, finding the time and the impetus to make that happen. <laughs> I've learned the first three verses of Ya Ein Molaitan, and it's in Bedouin Arabic. Mm-hmm. Right? So, yeah, it's been really fun. And then when I see the guy that sells falafel on the commons and he's from Egypt, I'm like, can I sing this song to you? <laughs> and also, like, when you mention that, it's like there's all these different dialects. Right. And so, of course, the Arabic that I'm learning in an academic sense, or anybody who's learning Arabic in an academic setting, you're learning what they call modern standard Arabic which nobody actually speaks. Arabic speakers in the Arab world are not speaking modern standard Arabic. They're speaking their dialect. And every dialect actually is very, very different. 
So you have to get familiar with what the idiosyncrasies are of each dialect. So say, for example, Egyptian Arabic, the jin, the je sound becomes a ga, the ka, the kaf becomes a uh, more like a hamsa. So there's those little things, but then there's also things that those dialects do to certain verbs and how you address people. And everyone's a little bit different. So if you have a modern standard Arabic base, you can understand pretty well. But again, generating that language, actually speaking it out loud, that takes immersion. So the dialect thing, I think for all my friends who also have studied Arabic, that's one of the biggest challenges. You know, people always ask, which dialect should I learn? Which dialect should I learn? And it really depends on what you want to do with it. So again, I was learning academic Arabic because that was what they were training us to do is to do research. Now, does that help me when I have to talk to a band? Yeah, a little bit. <laughs> and of course, if they're working with a band and your band members might all be from different countries too. So then there's that. <laughs> so yeah, it's a challenge, but it's worth it. Wonderful. The featured songs will always be available on Spotify on my Belly Dance Body and Soul playlist. Follow my playlist, listen for free, and dancing will become even easier with hundreds of diverse belly danceable songs, all curated for you and all on one list right at your fingertips. Just click on that Spotify icon on the top of aliciafree.com and it will take you right there. Let's do some dancing. Damn sexy dance move. What damn sexy dance move would you like to share? This question, honestly, it stumped me. I was kind of like, <laughs> I don't know. I'm one of those people that I find the way someone's mind works. That's what I'm going to find sexy. How do you think? How do you see the world? And, you know, this is also really cliche, but I don't really think it's the move that makes someone sexy. It's the reason behind it. Like, why are you doing a move? Why are you moving in a way that you're moving? So I just think of something really simple, like an arm wave. You know, someone could be learning it for the first time and they feel awkward. So then it looks awkward. Or someone could be refining their technique and feel really confident with that. And it becomes more fluid. It becomes more embodied. It becomes more part of that person's marrow, to borrow words from Suhela. And then if they're doing that arm wave, okay, where are they looking? And how are they looking? How are they using their eyes? How are they using their gaze? That's what's going to make something sexy or riveting or engaging. So for me, it's not the move itself. It's how are you doing it? Also the why. Because I find when I watch a lot of dancers, if something is ego driven, like, look at me, look at me, look at me, I don't find that very appealing to watch. But if it comes from the inside, a sort of sense of honesty and confidence, then I'm going to be far more likely to go with them on that dance journey. You know, other guests have said that, but not like you did. <laughs> the way you said it was a totally different way of saying that same idea where it's like, why are you doing it? What is the motivation as the dancer? Mm -hmm. I mean, when you watch some of these dance performances, for example, on YouTube, where it's gymnastics, you know, it's right. crazy quick moves that look painful. And then you watch Fifi Abdu and she's just stunning. Fabulous. Yeah. I'm sure you follow her on Instagram. Fifi Abdu now? Oh, yes. I need to. I didn't even realize she was on Instagram. Yes, and you need to put this in the links to this podcast when you're done because she posts all the time and it's basically like most of it is her in a fabulous dress dancing in her living room. It's wonderful. I adore her. Oh, and thank everybody you so needs much to go check it out. Again, it's like she's doing it because she owns it. Yep. I don't know. I'm not in Fifi Abdo's mind, although I would love to take a little <laughs> trip there someday. And then you see other people that are just like banging out something that's really difficult to impress you on a technique level or, you know, a skill level. And I 
I don't feel it. I don't feel you there. But yes, I think yeah. those are great points. And it's funny because, you know, I'm a licensed instructor of Soundpour School. The Soundpour method gets accused of that a lot. Like, oh, it's just moves. It's just technique. But once you get into levels three and above, I think when you talked about this with Anna, it becomes about what's your truth? What's your honesty? And the technique is this foundation to be able to express whatever that emotion is for whatever that song is and being able to own it. So yeah, there's a balance for sure. Right. And that's the temptation, I think, with a lot of people that start belly dance, like a Zumba class. You take five Zumba classes, you're pretty darn good at Zumba, I bet. But if you take a belly dance class five times, yeah, the process, I think it's much more of a lifelong potential process than a lot of other dance forms. But again, I only do belly dance, so I shouldn't really speak about other dance forms, but from the more popular ones that I've seen. Well, you know, Zumba is an exercise method. It's aerobics. So its purpose is really different than all the other dance forms that I've studied. With Zumba, you have no cultural responsibility. You go in, you follow along, and it's fun. I've taken some banging Zumba classes, and I sweat, and it's fun. But at the end of the class, I don't have to go study a culture. I don't have to be familiar with the language. I don't have to know anything about the music. I can just go and take my aerobics class and be done. But if you're learning a dance form, any dance form, and this goes for ballet, for any kind of modern, for any kind of street dance, any sort of classical dance that's not from the Euro-American tradition, you're responsible for culture. And, you know, ballet is an ethnic dance. Modern dance has culture, it has origins, it has roots. So it's a different kind of movement practice than just going in and dancing and having fun. And I think that's always going to be a big struggle for belly dance is you have people coming in and they want to have the exercise and they want to have the community and they want to have fun. And don't we all? I love that. But the people that are going to stick around are going to be the ones who are curious and interested in the context. And I actually overheard before the lockdown, one of my students go, I'm going to finish up my class card, but I think when I'm done, I'm going to go back to Zumba. And I'm like, okay. <laughs> And that's fine. I'm not offended. This isn't for you. That's cool. I don't care. I mean, I care because I liked her. <laughs> but, you know, but I was kind of like, okay, so this isn't your thing. And that's okay. So going off on a tangent there, but I think it's really important. And anyone who's stuck around in this dance form who isn't from the culture, I think really understands that, that responsibility. And that was the theme in all the classes that I took in grad school. I took this incredible street dance class with, she calls herself a hybrid choreographer, but she taught a street dance class. Her name is Amy O'Neill. And she and I would have these really amazing conversations about cultural responsibility because she comes from you know Irish background. She, you know, she's white presenting, we'll just say that. And our conversations were a lot about how do we negotiate being a guest in a dance form that's not the culture that we grew up in. It was really encouraging and really illuminating to be speaking with this other dancer who's been going through very, very similar things, but in a different form. So understanding you're a guest if you're not from the culture of origin. And just like if you were a guest in someone's house, like how would you behave? How would you want a guest to behave in your own house? So something I keep in mind a lot. That's great. Oh, I mentioned Zumba because I feel like Zumba has created a new normal in terms mm -hmm. of doing a dance that you didn't grow up with. Totally. You know, Zumba is a mix too. Like I was watching the Zumba class at my grad school in the studio next door and they go from, you know, salsa footwork and then they go into some Bollywood inspired stuff and then they go into some hip work and it's a melange it's a mix <laughs> 
I love what you said about your damn sexy dance move and how you used an arm wave as an example of the concept of the motivation of the dancer being the sexiest thing potentially. Is there another dance move that's like your go-to move that's your signature move that you do almost every song? <laughs> oh my God. Yes. Jamila Sound Poor Format, one, two, three, and. And every time I do it, I'm like, oh my God, I'm doing one, two, three, and again. So one, two, three, and is it's a chasse. Your feet are going right, left, right, left, right, left left, right, left, right, left, right, left, and your hips are going right, left, right, left, right, left, right, left, left, single, single, three quarter, single, single, three quarter. Yeah, is my go-to. And every time I do it, I'm like, oh, crap, I can't come up with anything else other than single, single, three quarter. <laughs> but that's the one for sure. Every single time. It probably makes you feel pretty good, though, if you do it every time. No? Yeah, yeah. I'm like, I've worked really hard on you know my three quarter shimmies and my hip work, like really hard. I'll put a link to a video of this move in the show notes, and I keep adding helpful free dance videos on YouTube and Instagram and Facebook. Subscribe and the moves will keep coming. But this is important, I think, for listeners is um, when I was in grad school, I got really injured. My hamstrings, my biceps femoris, both legs really have had a really hard time, partially because of my background in figure skating. And it was 80s and 90s and physical therapy, it just wasn't as great as it is now. So I had no idea I was beating up on my body the way I was. But then I was having these like recurring hamstring issues. And then in grad school, I tore my left one, like not bad, bad, but tore it enough to be out. I had to sit on the floor. As I'm getting a dance degree. I'm getting a degree in dance and I can't even dance. I have to sit on the freaking floor. And it was interesting because one of the professors was like, you don't know it now, but your injury is a gift. You will realize later that your injury is a gift because it gives you information about yourself and it'll give you information about how to take care of your body. And at this point, I was just in the like heights of self-pity. Everything is terrible. I can't dance. Everything hurts. You know, you can't see me, but I'm putting the back of my hand to my forehead like, woe is me. And I realized, yes, the injury was a gift because what happened is I went to physical therapy. I worked with this amazing physical therapist and she was able to identify what was wrong with my body, but what was in not balanced and what wasn't balanced were my glutes. And so since then I'm like, okay, I'm going to work on my glutes. So this goes back to the three quarter shimmy because now I feel like, ah, now I can really do single, single, three quarter. <laughs> so maybe I should just own it. Be like, yes, I'm doing it again. Here it is again. Yeah. <laughs> Rather than beating myself up for not being creative. But there is that sense, I think, when we get injured or when we get hurt or, you know, we can't dance. I see a lot of people stop coming to class because they're injured or, oh, I'm having issues with my this or my that. And I'm always like, come to class and watch. Watch the other dancers. Watch the instructor. Take notes. And it is so hard to convince people to do that. It's so hard because there's a sense of like, why should I be there if I can't dance? People are going to judge me because I'm sitting on the floor to beat myself up because I'm not doing the thing like how valuable can it really be but I, people who are listening if you are injured you are not so injured that you're not mobile but if it's something that you can still go to class go to class take notes because that external view of the classroom is going to inform how you're going to return so it turns out that that professor was absolutely correct the injury was a gift and I feel like I'm so much stronger now I feel like I know my body so much better now so sometimes it takes something really terrible for you to realize how to make it better rather than just sort of kind of limping along in this state if that makes any sense so yeah absolutely 
I actually started belly dancing because I sprained my ankle five times distance running. Oh, gosh. <laughs> yeah. Oh. So I thought I was going to be a runner for life, but my ankle wasn't doing it. No. You know, and I am um, so grateful. I started belly dancing. My ankle had healed to the point where it didn't hurt when mm-hmm. I was dancing. And that's why I did it. And that's why I stuck with it. I know a lot of people who started belly dancing because they wanted a different way to rehabilitate injury. Quite a few people. And it works. So. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And the funny thing with this conversation, too, is I also started Qigong because I went to see a person and they said, you have no connection to the earth. Oh, fascinating. Yes. She said, your ankles keep doing this because you are lacking that grounding point. And I really was all over the place in terms of my thoughts and my behavior. And so Qigong brought the energy back down. She said, cook Mm. and do Qigong. And those two things have helped me so much. Yeah, it's really amazing. I have more tangent here, but I know there's a lot of skepticism around it, but I find that a lot of the traditional Chinese medicine approaches, those have been the ones that also really helped my body with regards to sort of systemic health and wellness. So regular acupuncture, taking certain herbs, eating certain foods. So I know we'll talk about plant-based eating for a while, but even within that, like the kinds of foods that you're eating and what kind of heat are you generating? How are you feeding the different yin and yang in your body? And I was totally skeptical about it. I was like, fine, I'll eat these foods. I'll see what happens. And I was like, oh, I feel so much better now. (laughs) Well, yeah, you do. So those holistic whole body practices, as you're saying, it isn't just about exercise. It's about, okay, you're going to be cooking now. Like, who knew? I feel like we should go right to the whole food. What's your favorite whole food plant-based ingredient (laughs) or one that you love? My in-laws are actually macrobiotic chefs. Oh, wow. I'm so stinking lucky. (laughs) And they have a cookbook and they break down the elements and that's how they live. Awesome. Yeah, it's been beautiful to learn about that. That's how my husband was raised. So indirectly, he's taught me about it. Featured light in my body food. What is one vegan whole food ingredient that you love? I eat a whole food plant-based diet. And that's because my partner has been following that diet for far longer than me. And he cooks. So he convinced me. And I feel really, really good when I eat that way. So I've been that way really since like 2011. And I have a lot of favorite foods. So I had to avoid lentils because that was Suhela's. <laughs> that's one of my favorites. You, like, you could feature lentils for forever too because I love them so much. I love lentils. <laughs> They're like the perfect little food. But I also love potatoes. I just love potatoes. And I choose potatoes because in the last 10-15 years, starches have been getting a really, really bad rap in the media of food. And I am super, super into starches. And I love potatoes. I love the versatility of potatoes. You can bake potatoes. You can add all sorts of things to them. They're really satisfying for some reason my body and my constitution. Root vegetables in general, I feel really good when I eat them. I feel like, oh, this is something I need to be eating. Things in that are grown in the ground, in the earth, you get all that extra like bacteria and those vitamins that come from the soil. So if you're eating organic stuff, right, you're getting all those extra minerals. Yeah, potatoes. And I have a second one. And this is going to be really polarizing because this is one of those things you either love them or you hate them. But I love mushrooms. But again, grown in the earth. Apparently, everything I eat has to be covered in dirt. <laughs> so, <laughs> potatoes and mushrooms. I absolutely love. But yeah, potatoes because they're really versatile. 
I actually just pulled some sweet potatoes and some baking potatoes out of the oven because yes. that's one of my favorite things. And I was baking actually some portobello mushrooms mm. with tempeh. And I have this ridiculous tempeh marinade recipe on my site that I modified and put balsamic in this time. But, oh my God, I want oh, it. <laughs> yeah, you're speaking my language. <laughs> I didn't realize you're plant-based. That's yeah, awesome. Yeah, yeah. My first plant-based belly dancer really? on the show. Oh my yeah. God. Oh yeah, I could go off. I'm pretty quiet about it because, you know, you don't want to be that like, the preachy vegan. (laughs) Wait, have you heard the joke? How do you know somebody's vegan? They'll tell you. Don't worry, they'll tell you. Exactly. I used to work for Dr. T. Colin Campbell, right. one of the co-authors of the China study. Which is so cool. I can't even tell you. When I saw that on your website, I was like, you work for T. Colin Campbell. Oh, my God. It's like six degrees of like separation from personal superstar for me. Yep. He's amazing. He's given many, many gifts to the world, and we are very grateful. Yeah. And I find the food thing. So I have food anxiety when I travel because of not just the plant-based thing, but I'm also really allergic to wheat. So Ah. it triggers a lot of my autoimmune and inflammatory issues. So not only do I not eat wheat, but I don't eat meat or any other animal products. So I'm that person that you can't take out anywhere. I could find places to take you. Yes. I get you. I get it. But thankfully in Berkeley, you know, that's not so much of a problem. Oh, right. California is much kinder than most places in the world for that kind of <laughs> set of requirements for eating or set of desires. Some of it might be desire. Mine is completely desire. I just love the way it feels when I eat whole mm-hmm. food and plant. Yep. And I also eat oil. I'm not a total whole food plant-based. I'll eat egg every once in a while. In Thailand, they put egg in the noodles. I'm like, whatever. Well, yeah, you know, yeah, but- totally. But, you know, if I have control over it, yeah, how I'm going to feed myself for sure. And again, I'm really lucky because my partner does the cooking and he's really good at it so there you go is there a particular kind of potato that he really likes to work with the most depends on the recipe and like how you're going to use it so like last night he did baked fries so just slicing the potato up into slices like you know british chips and then just put them on parchment paper and put them in the oven but they were russet potatoes because the russets are really good for baking but then when it comes to like sweet potatoes you get sweet potatoes and put them in chili but you can do the sweet potatoes slice like chips as well like British chips and put that in the oven that's also really good so yeah slice them up and put them in a bowl with salt a little bit of paprika maybe a little bit of cumin kind of depends on what kind of flavor you want then yeah put them in the oven bake them up really tasty yum I just love scooping baked potatoes and mm. sweet potatoes just scooping the goo out because mm-hmm. <laughs> I bake them for like over an hour you know 450 or whatever yes. oh I love that my son loves it too our son it's like candy you know it's such a beautiful food for kids mm. yeah and then when you bake the sweet potato they get sweeter oh yeah so you get like all those natural sugars yeah again I feel like sugars and carbs have gotten such a bad rap recently but they're really good for you and also humans really need them well and refined like- sugars and refined carbs are garbage and that's what's most available to people and then it's conflated right whole grains Mm -hmm. are a completely different animal than a refined absolutely so yeah that's part of the demonizing and the confusion and then people don't know Mm -hmm. what the hell to eat and it's horrible for people so yeah and then you know i get off on the the issue of food equity too so you know you have areas where you can't get fresh vegetables or you can't get fresh food and you're stuck in these food deserts you know like how are you even supposed to eat well when the whole socioeconomic system kind of conspires against you to not eat well 
Well, that and the lack of knowledge on how to make beans and rice, you know, like even if that's mm-hmm. available, a lot of people don't know that how much time it takes and how to do it, and how to mm-hmm. do it with five kids. And yeah, and how much time do you have to even cook? Yeah, and, yeah, and clean that's that a up. whole conversation right. for a whole other thing. But yeah, right. absolutely. Yeah. So I feel very privileged to be in the position where I am to not only have a partner who cooks, but also that both of us have the time to sit down and have dinner together. That's one of our things that we do. Like that's really important that we sit down and we have dinner, even if I have to go out and teach or if I got something in the evening. Dinner is really, really important because that's grounding to be able to sit down at the table and eat together. And I never really did that as a kid, not because of any sort of home issues. It just wasn't part of the routine. So now that it is, it's something I really, really value and really look forward to every night. What's for dinner? We're like hobbits. We're like eating breakfast and we're like, what's for dinner? Especially in quarantine. Exactly. It's all about the next meal. I'm always excited too. They have to think about it three weeks in advance too and put it on the grocery list and then let it sit for three days. (laughs) What about second breakfast? Oh, yes, yes. Absolutely. (laughs) Always thinking about the hobbitses. They love the food or whatever they do. Exactly. Oh, my God. Awesome. I'm going to bounce back up to the question about tribal. Oh, yes. On your site, akeysdance.com, that's A-K-E-Y, like a key you turn in a door, E-S, dance.com. It says that the term tribal may be outdated. Can you tell us more about that? Yeah. So I just want to put a disclaimer on this because some of your listeners might know me from back in the day. I was really involved in the tribal fusion scene in the mid 2000s. So I'm kind of saying this from an insider who is now kind of an outsider. And the term tribal Words can change meaning depending on how they're used and who uses them. So now with the interconnectedness of social media, we're seeing more indigenous communities speak up against the use of the word tribal by non-indigenous peoples and saying that it perpetuates stereotypes and racism. And I think it's really important that non-Indigenous peoples listen because it's becoming clearer and clearer that the use of that term has been causing harm. And even if we didn't know that it was causing harm, we can know that now. There was an interesting thing that happened in Las Vegas a couple of months ago, I think, where there was someone who was organized. This is not belly dance at all. This was more like Burning Man, but it was one of these festivals where they had bands and yoga classes and like other spiritual stuff and he was calling it something something tribal and some indigenous leaders in Nevada were like dude what are you doing and they had an in-person conversation they all gathered and they live streamed the conversation and it was really incredible to watch so I was watching this live stream of this conversation with these indigenous leaders in Las Vegas with the organizer of this festival explaining not only is it harmful but the years and decades decades and even centuries of trauma and persecution against indigenous peoples in the United States. This is just one more thing. So it's a really heavy topic. And I think some people are becoming a little bit more open to talking about it. But I think a couple years ago, I'm not sure how many people were really ready to talk about that. And it's really hard to admit that something that you've been doing and something that say you're really involved in that scene, that something that you really love is causing other people harm and trauma. It's really difficult because most of us want to believe that we're good people. And I feel we are good people. And with something like dance, which brings people such joy and community and friendships to realize that what you've been calling it is racist, like that's hard. That's really hard. So this year, I feel like the scene has been doing a lot of soul searching. And it'll be really interesting to see where that soul searching takes that scene in general, because there are some really amazing people 
dance is powerful. And so being able to adjust what you're doing and adjust what you call it is part of growth. And sometimes growth is realizing that you've done stuff that, you know, has caused other people harm. And I think that for all of us, like I was saying, you know, we're a guest in the belly dance culture. And that's one of those things that each of us individually is going to have to come up with our own answer to what that means. Because there is not a one size fits all. Do this, don't do that. And I think a lot of people come into this dance and they're like, I don't want to commit cultural appropriation. I want to make sure that I'm doing responsible dance. But each of us is coming from a different background, a different place, different ethnicities, different cultural experiences, different experiences of institutionalized racism. So each of our experiences in belly dance is going to be very, very different. And yeah, just our backgrounds and sometimes the way we present or the way we pass isn't reflective of what our family histories are or what our cultural histories are. And also, this is super important, understanding that everybody is in a different point in their learning about these issues. So I've seen some pretty nasty stuff on social media with people who are really, really experienced in social justice, just jumping on other dancers who are probably really new to these terms and really new to these issues and just being pretty vicious. And that doesn't help either. Public shaming and public callouts. I've been the target of that. It's really traumatic in its own way. I think it's really ableist against people who have anxiety issues or social anxiety or PTSD. So call in, don't call out. That was a lot of talking, explaining tribal. (laughs) I didn't think that's where you were going to go with all that, though. All this is new to me. It makes perfect sense. But is there a term that you think is going to be the future where tribal was used before? Do you have an idea of what will be used in the future? I don't know, because I feel like the leaders in that scene are coming up with their own things. So, you know, ATS is now Fat Chance Belly Dance style. Oh. And I know Amy Sigil changed what she's the improvisational team sync, which totally fits what she does because it's all about the teamwork for her. So that's like perfect. So the leaders who had been using the term tribal are adjusting their terms and their branding And, you know, when your business is based on a name or a brand and you have people who have also been basing their business on that brand, there are some growing pains. But I think in the long run, it's better for everybody. Yeah, evolve. We're just evolving. And I love how you said everyone's at a different point in that learning process. Mm -hmm. Don't need to come down hard on each other, you know, for saying something wrong. But yeah, do let people know, but you don't need to make them feel horrible about it in public. Yeah. And, you know, that's also like there's matters of degree because some people do say horrible things in public. And they know they're horrible. So it's the difference between like someone who's new to belly dance and doesn't really know and someone who's just digging their heels in because they don't want to change and they feel threatened. Mm. I've seen other people on social media be called in who are new to belly dance and they're like, oh, wow, I didn't know about these issues. Thank you so much for letting me know. And I think... For leaders in the community, sometimes they'll talk about emotional labor, like how much work do we do to educate people that's uncompensated? But I think there's a balance. So maybe having a list of books and articles that you can just send to someone and be like, hey, I don't have the time to educate you, but here are some things I recommend. Go read them yourself. Is there one on the top of that list that you would recommend? It really depends on the situation. Gotcha. Yeah, yeah. Well, and I mean, that's a lot of what you do on your website, your blog posts, I feel like are in response to things that you see going on that you want to give people a resource to move forward with that issue. Yeah, I like getting people to think deeper. And it also helps the blog is also for me to work out my own stuff. (laughs) 
like I have this idea. Sometimes I don't know what I'm thinking until I write it down. It gets me in trouble sometimes. (laughs) So in addition to all of your years studying and teaching in dance studios, you studied Near Eastern Studies at Princeton, Arabic at Georgetown, and you are an adjunct professor now in Berkeley and a published author. It is clear that research and academia are important to you. How has your formal college education influenced your dancing? This is actually something I feel like I struggle with because you can read and read and read about something, but until you're there in it, your experience with it changes. But what research and academia has helped me with is understanding the context and the bigger picture. So in my Near Eastern Studies degree, what I focused on mostly was U.S.-Arab relations after starting in the 1960s onward. And most of my college years were pre-September 11th. So we're talking like different political era. But what I feel like what the academic studies have helped me with is understanding context and understanding why certain events are important and how they have changed the political and social landscape. Also, in high school, I had a history teacher who would always ask, what's the significance of this event? And that wasn't years and dates. Honestly, as a historian, I'm terrible with dates. Actually, awful. Like, I have to look things up. But I could remember why something's important and how it changed what came afterwards. And so what I feel like all these studies have done for me as a dancer is being able to take a really big picture view of what's happened in belly dance history and what's happening now and sort of seeing the possibilities for where this is going to take us in a year or five years or 10 years. Like, what is that going to look like? So I also was an intelligence analyst for eight years. And that's one of your jobs is you look at reporting and you determine, you know, basically, okay, here are the things that might happen based on the information that we have. And the other thing that was really important about that is understanding sources. So if your source material is weak, I felt like for when I started belly dancing, a lot of our historical source material that was sort of available to the general public was really weak. It was a lot of what I call wishery. So how can you base your education on these things that are kind of made up or things that people wanted to have been true? Like, oh, it's ancient goddess dance or it's for women only and these things that people wanted belly dance to be. But if you dig into the historical record, you'll find out like, oh, it's not just for cisgendered women and it's not really ancient goddess dance and dance is actually ephemeral and, you know, it's changing. So being also comfortable with ambiguity and being comfortable with being able to read academic sources and not necessarily agree with everything that you read. So one of the things I was dealing with in graduate school is we'd read these reviews of various dance performances and the professor was like, so what do you think? And I was like, well, I don't agree. And she's like, good. You don't have to agree. You don't have to agree with everything that's been written, but be responsible about it and have a why and have your why be based in reliable sources and reporting. So if your source is just a rumor or your source is hearsay or what someone wants it to be, then, you know, your argument's not going to hold a lot of water. Great. You're such a college professor. I love it, Abby. <laughs> you're bringing me back. <laughs> right, because you're an Ivy Leaguer too, right? I am, yeah. I did my undergrad and grad work at Cornell, and I love Cornell. We went to a bunch of college students. I love that energy. I love that kind of questioning. And I'm very guilty of that whole, oh, I want it to be this way. What did you call it? Wishtery? Like the history you wish mm-hmm. would happen. You know, I remember learning, oh, yes, belly dance is a birthing dance that was done at the bedside of the woman giving birth. And I was like, that's so cool. And then we're like, we have no sources for this. (laughs) And, you know, for that thing, I think it depends on also, like, how do you define belly dance? 
you know, is belly dance just a collection of movements? Well, then if it's just a collection of movements with no cultural or let me say performative elements, then things like interior hip circles and undulations absolutely would help in birthing. But is it belly dance? Is it performative? I don't know if you're performing your birth for people. I don't know. I don't have kids. So maybe you are. I don't know. But having a definition of what it is and one of the problems with belly dance is that we don't even have a good name for what we do. All these other dance forms have names and we have belly dance, which was, you know, made up by Saul Bloom in the late 19th century. And that was came from French, you know, danse de vent, which also means stomach dance or belly dance. And then we have rakshartki, which is an Arabic term for dance, but that's just the performative stage version, rakbelity, meaning the sort of more like countryside dance or more folky dance. But then what about the belly dance that's done in Turkey? Like, okay, so what about, you know, American belly dance? So I use the term belly dance because it's the one thing that I think non-dancers are going to be able to understand at least some ways, even if it's stereotypes. Oh yeah, and then there's oriental dance, but you say oriental dance to someone, they might think East Asia. This is one of those things that comes up over and over and over again, especially in the academic world. Like, what do we call it? What is it we do? And there's a lot of trying to define belly dance. And that definition, I feel like there's a lot of interpretation of what that means because there isn't like a set. There isn't an agreed upon definition for it. So I'm sure these conversations are happening in other forms, but maybe not to the extent. I think probably the first five years that I was taking belly dance classes I just thought American Cabaret was the only belly dance there was. Yeah, yeah. You know, I was like, oh, okay. So this is what belly dance is. And then I'm like, oh, no, there's another genre. There's another form. There's another folkloric dance, you know. It keeps unfolding and it's like like a fractal. You just keep going in and in and in and it just becomes more and more and more, which I think is really the beautiful thing about learning and about education is that you keep unfolding, keeps unfurling and you keep learning more. And to me, that's really exciting, the possibilities and the endless process of learning. But I think for some people that can feel really overwhelming. Wonderful. So we did a little bit of the belly dance history talk right there, which is wonderful. (laughs) You have great blog posts that help belly dancers learn more Arabic. And I'll include links to those in the show notes. Most of us know the word Habibi or my love because we've heard it repeated in Arabic dance songs. And most belly dancers know the Arabic words for popular dance rhythms like Beledi, Ayub, Maksum, and Saidi. Can you teach us a couple more Arabic words every belly dancer should know? I try to go with the ones that you hear a lot in songs. So there are a couple words for life, and they mean kind of different things. So obviously, we have the song like Enta Omri. Enta means you. Arabic is a gendered language. So there's Enta, Enti. And then Omar is life, but it has a kind of big, deep, almost spiritual quality to it. So Omar or Omri. And then there's also another word for life, which is hayat. And then my life would be hayati. That has more of a worldly quality to it, sort of a more here and now quality to it. But with Arabic, there's these little subtleties that are obvious within the context of the piece. But those two words for life, you hear quite a bit in Arabic music. The next one is word for heart. And in more modern standard Arabic, it's qalb. And that has the qaf. And qaf is a letter that doesn't exist in English. So in modern standard Arabic, yeah, you'd start with the qaf, the qalb. But in Egyptian Arabic, they drop the qaf and it becomes a glottal stop and it becomes elb. And again, the e at the end of it, like elbi, means mine. So my heart. Really, really important here that you don't say kelb with the k in the front of the mouth because that means dog. Totally different. <laughs> 
<laughs> this one, I think most everybody will know. So Arabic is a Semitic language and most of the words come from a three-letter root. So the word Habibi, the three-letter root is the sounds are the ha, ba, and ba. So the word hub also comes from that. And hub means love, like the concept of love. And then you also hear this word a lot in music, especially like Egyptian pop music, behebbek. So you hear that ha, ba, ba, behebbek, the second ba is doubled. And there's a little diacritical mark that would go over that in Arabic called the shedda. So behebbek. And the ek or the ik, the ek at the end, that's a second person. That's you. So that's like, I love you. And that's colloquial. So anything you hear with the ha, ba, ba has to do with love. Habibi, hab, habibti, hob. Like the song Laylat Hob means love night. So the next thing I would say is Layla or Laylat. So the actual word Layla has what they call a ta marbuta at the end. And sometimes that ta is pronounced and sometimes it's not, depending on the grammatical construction. So Layla means night. So Laylat Hob means love night. And then I was thinking other sort of more like celestial. Nur means light. Nar means fire. And then there's also Qamar, which means moon. But again, Qamar in modern standard Arabic becomes Amar. So different from Omri, which is with the Ayn in the front. That's for like Enta Omri. But Amar or Qamar means moon. So there was that song that was really popular when I started belly dancing called Amarain. <laughs> <laughs> which means two moons. So sometimes you'll hear a doubling of things. So amarain is two moons. So the ain suffix means two. So yeah, gamar, these sort of celestial things referring to the beloved, whoever the subject of the song is. Of course, bellid and bellidy. And I wanted to bring this up because it's not just a rhythm. It has a lot of different meanings. So bellid can mean country, like the United States is a country. Typically not in that quite political way, but it is sort of like the land you come from. So bellidy, in this case, the e can mean something that comes from the bellid, or it can mean my country. So belledy in the rhythm sense, meaning that's the rhythm that comes from the bellid, but belledy could also be like, oh, I'm talking about my beloved country. So understanding those suffixes sometimes can be really difficult for people. So just getting familiar with it. Obviously the word rocks means dance, but this is one of my peeves, actually, when people leave the sod off of the end of it, the S sound, because rocks comes from the triliteral root, so when people say you rock with the R-A-Q, that's cutting off the end of a word. Like that's not how it works. You can't just do that. It's not plural. Rocks is not plural. It's a singular concept. And also, yeah, Egyptian Arabic, they're going to drop the cough and it's going to be rocks. So there's that. The word toxim. So we have a lot of cough. <laughs> <laughs> I always like to explain the word toxim because toxim is often used in dance context to mean a kind of movement, but it refers to a musical form. So it's a solo improvisation by one musician, usually a melodic musician, so oud or kanun. And it also means partition or a break. So it's a break in between songs or in the middle of a song. So the toxim means to break or break apart or something that's in pieces, which relates to the rhythm maksum, which kind of has a broken quality to it. So I always like to explain that, kind of contextualizing that triliteral root system in words that we probably have already heard before. So just understanding that Arabic is a Semitic language, it has different grammatical rules and structures, it has different letters that don't exist in English. And that can be really difficult, especially if you're learning these sounds as more of an adult. I was really lucky to start my Arabic studies in high school. 
So, I mean, for someone of my background with no Middle Eastern background within my family, the earlier you can get familiar with these sounds, the better, because it's just how your body develops and is able to generate them. But if you make an effort, that's important. So those are some words that I think are important to know. I'm sure there are lots more. Those are the ones that came to mind. That's a great breakdown. There's an app that I use that slows things down. Mm. Audio poet. So when I'm learning songs in another language, for example, I slow them down so much. Oh, that's awesome. And just drill it, drill it, drill it before I check it on other people even. Mm -hmm. So there are so many tools now for us to really hear every piece of a word being said that's just on my phone, you know? Yeah, so that's great. Check that out. I'll put that in here too. It's helpful yeah. for learning any language. I guess I feel like we no longer have any excuses to not learn a language well if we really want to because there's so many resources. Yeah, and I think time is a resource for a lot of people. So it's, you know, finding that time. But even just these little tools that we have and these resources resources, a little effort can go a really long way. Oh, yeah. I speak fluent Thai. And oh, wow. I speak some Lao and I speak Bahasa Indonesia. And I speak Thai like a Thai person, which is wonderful. But I didn't have YouTube when I was learning Thai. I had loneliness. <laughs> you know right? what I mean? And that was a great teacher. And now when you go to Thailand and I'm speaking to people, they're like, a lot of people, a lot of Westerners can now speak Thai a lot better than they did 15 years ago because oh, of better resources. resources on our phones. Yeah, it's beautiful. That's awesome. That is so cool. So for Arabic, we have so many different resources we can use too. So thank you. I know when I was doing my immersion studies at the Monterey Institute, I was like, wait, we have Google Translate. Like I can actually type my papers in Arabic. Like I did not have that when I was an undergrad. Yes. It was so cool. I was so excited. Yep. You know, watch this video on YouTube. Exactly. Over and over and over and over again. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah, it was great. If you do not speak Arabic, how would you determine if an Arabic song is appropriate to dance to? What do you do for songs mm -hmm. that you don't already know that are in Turkish or other languages that you don't understand too? The first thing I do if I'm like unclear about a song is I do a Google search and in Roman script or Latin script and I search translation <laughs> because I like to know like kind of what other people have already interpreted. But we were just saying with the social media and the internet resources that we have now, there are a lot of really great groups on Facebook. I'll have to find some specific links where you can either find people who are willing to translate for you or you pay them to translate a song for you. And you could even ask like, what's the general idea of this song? So there are a lot of people out there who are willing to help and not necessarily even just be curious about it. And I don't think there's any reason to try to just feel like you have to figure it all out by yourself when there's resources out there for you, especially in the belly dance scene. There are a lot of native speakers who really want people to understand and they really want people to dance responsibly. And I think even offering a little bit of payment would be a gesture, a goodwill. Not that you have to pay for everything, but it is their labor, it is their time, and it is their skill. So if there's a song that you're like, I really love it, but I don't know what it is. Yeah, there are people out there who We'll help you out for sure and give you the general idea. Now, of course, everybody's interpretation of those lyrics might be a little bit different. So just know that. You're reminding me of one Armenian song I found. I think it was Armenian. It was so gorgeous. And so I just put the title. There were no lyrics for it. Just put the title in Google Translate. And the translation was like Road of Death. And I was like, thank you. <laughs> you're like, never mind. Thank you for that title being reflective of what this piece is about. Because <laughs> if it doesn't have lyrics oh. too, you know. And you just gave me a huge gift, Abby 
because I use Fiverr and I use Fiverr to get notation transcribed. Like we're playing an Algerian wedding in the summer and she has specific requests. And so I'm getting those songs that I can't find any notation for transcribed or notated, I should say. I could be asking people to translate Ya'in Malayten because the translations, I think that's the song that I'm having a really hard time getting a really good translation of. Everybody does. So. Yeah, but if I can find <laughs> someone on Fiverr that speaks better in Arabic and English, I might luck out. <laughs> but it never occurred to me to just go on Fiverr for a translation of a piece possibility. And there might even be other platforms just for finding translation. So that might be something I haven't ever I've really gone into that and investigated, but I'm sure there are lots of other resources for people to get stuff translated and pay people for their work. Because I think we live in that kind of society where we need money to do things. Well, pay people for it because then it'll actually get done too. I have some different requests now to yeah. some of my friends where I'm like, could you, you know, just talk to your grandma someday and figure out what she thinks about this song? And two years later, I'm like, never mind. <laughs> you know, but I didn't offer to pay them. They're my friends. So paying, I think, moves things along a lot of the time. It does. It prioritizes right. <laughs> right. Let's play dress up. Make you shine, costume tip. What is one costume tip you want to share? So my costume tip is don't spend more money on costuming than your training. That's it. That's my tip. It's <laughs> great. It's a terrible tip. It's a terrible and great tip because it doesn't tell you anything about dressing for your body type or what colors you should wear. So yes, don't spend more money on your costume than your training. That's always rule number one. Also number two, make sure the costume you're wearing matches your performance see this a lot where what someone's wearing doesn't match the style of their movement or dance and particularly with more like fusion and hybrid forms people will be wearing a lot of stuff but then they're doing movements that are more like modern and contemporary it's actually hindering their movement so make sure what you're wearing reflects the kind of movement you're going to be doing and the style of what it is that you're doing so i know that takes a little bit of extra time and money but you can still be very simple with the costume and have it reflect the style that you're doing and having different options for that. So making sure that your presentation is a full picture. Movement first, music, what you're wearing, and also how you're styling your hair and your makeup. So that's another tip I see. And that comes from my figure skating background. So as a figure skater, I did a program to ragtime. So everything had a kind of early 20th century vibe to it. My costume, my movements. So yeah, just make sure it's the big picture and not just, oh, I like this and I like that and I like this and they don't go together. One thing that Suhaila said in the first interview was, this is not Halloween. These are people. Yeah. Because yeah. the temptation of, oh, I can buy this costume right now and I can put it together like somebody I saw on YouTube and then I'll go dance. But what I'm doing might have nothing to do with the costume. It's always about the why. Right. Always about the why. If you have a costume tip to share, please send it my way via Facebook or an email through my site. As Will Durant said, we are what we repeatedly do. So, let us repeatedly do what the divinely lovely do. Feel good. Look good habit. Do you have a feel good, look good habit that you would like to share? If I don't eat well, I don't feel good. And then I feel like I don't look good. So for me, it's all about food, which I know can be a really complicated thing for people. But for me, yeah, if I don't eat well, and that for me means that whole food plant-based diet, I feel like everything else kind of gets icky. 
from there. So yeah, that's my thing. And that's really personal. And that's going to be different for everybody. It's what's going to make them feel good and look good. But for me, it's all about the food. Yeah, I feel like for whatever reason we have, you know, once we figure out what's really satisfying to us and makes us feel awesome, and we feel good about, you know, having in our bodies all the time, then if we waver from that, we start to feel this dissonance. Absolutely. Yeah, just sticking with what's really working. Because yeah, I love the whole food plant-based diet. It's easy peasy for me. I shouldn't say it's simple. Again, it's simple, but not easy. I know what I want to eat and I get it however I can. And there I go, you know, but the whole diet culture realm and information about isolated nutrients is just so overwhelming. And I mean, I'm sure there are a lot of listeners who have very complex and complicated relationships with food in their body. So I don't want to be like, just eat plant-based. It's great. It's easy, you know, because it's easy for me, but maybe it's not easy for someone else who's listening. And I want to acknowledge that and honor that. Absolutely. Thank you for saying that. Tell us about something exciting that you have coming up. Something exciting. Well, you know, we just had to postpone the Ball and Ot show in Prague, which was supposed to happen on April 13th. And we postponed it for next March. And I'm still really excited about it. I'm still really excited that there is a time in the future where we will be able to get together, we'll be able to gather, we will be able to dance together, we will be able to, you know, see each other again, and not just on the screen. So I am really excited about that. I'm excited about having even more time to work on it, even more time to get costumes together and rehearse and connect with the other dancers in the cast. So that is something I'm really looking forward to, even though it's in the future. But the way time goes when you get older, like the future is now. (laughs) Yeah. Abby, thank you so much for your knowledge and for your very clear level-headedness about the dance world and history and what's coming up in the future and how we can be more responsible dancers and just citizens of the world. Thank you so much. Oh, thank you so much for having me. It was really fun. I hope you've enjoyed the show. Please subscribe and let your friends know what you got out of this show. Dance with me on YouTube, listen to the music I've selected for you on Spotify, and try some free vegan recipes on aliciafree.com. This is Alicia Free, hoping this show helped you feel a little lighter.